0: Car, he's the most honest car you ever see. It's been a dream ever since I've had it. The first time I heard that engine screaming, I thought, I gotta have one of those. For
1: me, the cars have personality.
0: What's great about a BMW Classic is the community that surrounds it.
1: When you listen to that, (laughs) that's why we're here. Welcome to a new episode of Classic Heart, the BMW Group Classic podcast. My name is JP, and my guest today is Jason Camisa. Not only a genius automotive journalist, he is also a BMW nut. He shares his passion for BMW on his YouTube channel. And we will talk about car culture, the European versus the US, figure out differences and facts based on Jason's profound expertise who lived in both continents. And dear listeners, as far as I know, Jason, I can promise you 30 minutes of great entertainment with a lot of humor. So,
0: Jason. Hi. What was the first car you drove today? Uh, my coffee machine. <laughs> I've made it. I made it all the way from my bedroom to the kitchen and now to my computer. But the last car that I drove is a Volkswagen e-Golf. Nice. Uh, not, uh, probably not what you expected me to say. Uh, absolutely
1: not. But you are full of surprises. If we follow your YouTube channel, you see there's like a big, big variety of cars. So where did this love for cars start?
0: I, I think it's a genetic mistake. I think it's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a problem because by the time I was two, apparently, I was completely obsessed with cars. It drove my parents crazy by pointing out every car that I could see. And, uh, and I have a twin sister and she just would roll her eyes and uh, think I was crazy for her whole childhood. And that continues today. So nothing, nothing's really changed. It's definitely a genetic or something in my structure that forces me to love cars. And I think there's a bit of Italian blood
1: in you, right? And also in terms of when we watch the videos, it's really like this activity level uh, from the German perspective is 100% Italian. So do you think,
0: does the Italian side come from your father's side? Um, I'm in big trouble because it comes from both sides. So I am born in New York, but both sides of my family are all Italian. And the in the area that I grew up was Brooklyn, New York is where I'm from, is very much an, an Italian ghetto in the sense of, the, the real sense of the word meaning. Everyone around was Italian. And we have our own culture, which my family tends to think is Italian, but is really actually just New York Italian. Yeah. Very different. And part of that is lot of <laughs> a lot of screaming, a lot of a lot of hand gestures, <laughs> a lot of craziness, I love a lot it, of fun, and great food. Yeah. great food. <laughs> so, how could you imagine this? You know, for me
1: being fifteen, you know, I would kill for moving to the U.S. because the U.S. was the country of uh, NBA, the country of good food, of fantastic sceneries, all these kind of things, movie cities, uh, New York, uh, Wall Street, all these kind of things. How was this for the 15-year-old Jason leaving the U.S. and coming to Germany? Where about in Germany, by the way?
0: Uh, Right outside of Frankfurt, beautiful town called Bad Homburg. Mm -hmm. Um, I would describe it as a nightmare scenario because, first of all, I was in a small school that was the same 60 or 70 kids from kindergarten all the way through, I was in 10th grade, and so my sister and I were plucked right out of that and moved to a foreign country. And the, the biggest problem was that I was six months away from getting my driver's license, oh. which you got at 15 and a half or 16 in New York and then 18 in Germany. And so I had this sudden realization that I would graduate high school with 17 and therefore never be able to drive in high school. Uh, that was about, I mean, the, the worst nightmare scenario I could have imagined. I I (laughs) see
1: that. You know, that means when the interest for cars starts around two years, it's uh, 13 years of suffering with the hope to get the license. And then no, Jason, it's another additional three years for you.
0: Yeah. So um, when was the first Autobahn run? (laughs) Uh, The first Autobahn run that I remember was my dad got, uh, we got an Opel Omega with the big motor with the 2.4 liter. And I just had never experienced extended high speeds before. Mm -hmm. Of course, my parents speed, everyone speeds. But to speed in the U.S. is, you know, 70 miles an hour. You hit 120, 130, that's it And then, you know, if you do something really terrible, maybe you accelerate up to 100 miles an hour, 160K for a second, and then you slow right back down (laughs) before the police see you. And we were driving to Paris and he was just at 200, so 125 (laughs) miles an hour for three hours. And the crazy thing for me was the idea that this engine would be spinning at five or six thousand RPM for hours and hours and hours on end and not explode. Yeah. Because you you want to talk about American cars? You you could take a new Chevrolet off the showroom floor, put it on an autobahn, and in twenty minutes blow that engine <laughs> just doing just doing what all the German stuff did every day. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we,
1: we spoke briefly about uh, your first dream car you had, like the car you would wish to have driving first. And for those who are following you on YouTube, you just did an homage to the US version of your E36 M3. So was that really the first reunion or did you have uh, touch points before?
0: I have I have had a couple of e thirty. I owned one E36, uh, which was a mistake. It was an automatic. <laughs> and uh, I've always really respected the E36. For those who don't know, the US car was very different than the European car. Tell uh, us about the difference, mostly. please. So the big difference was that the E30 M3 was a failure in the US dealerships. They sat around for years. I mean, they were still being sold as new three years later. And so the E36 wasn't going to happen at all. Because uh, BMW of North America realized it was just too expensive for American tastes. And the solution was to put a very simple engine in it. It was a 325i M50 engine, basically with with some additional displacement and more Mm -hmm. aggressive camshafts. And so it was 240 horsepower versus the European 282 or 286 PS and then 321. And so it was a simple car, um, but it really did work for the U.S. market. It was very inexpensive. It was only a couple thousand dollars more than a, a 325i, and it was better car in every way in terms of performance. Uh, so it was a huge success, even though looking back on it, so many enthusiasts say, oh, no, it's not a real M engine. It um, doesn't need to be. It does what it needs to do. And so that video was really fun to do because that was the first time I'd ever driven a US M3 together with a Euro. So I got both of them were the 3.2 liter cars. The US car had 35,000 miles on it. Mm -hmm. So it's the newest E36 I've been in since 1995. And the Euro car had 44,000 kilometers on it. So it was even less. That was also an S50B32. So the 321 horsepower car. And the crazy thing, what we didn't show on camera was the races that we did. So my director and I lined the cars up on a very definitely closed course with, uh, with approval from the local police uh, and raced them three times. And we just started out from idle in first gear all the way up to the top of third gear. So 80 miles an hour, 130K somewhere in mm-hmm. there. Um, and the cars were dead even. And that's amazing. amazing. Yeah, dead even every time we did it. And so the U.S. car was 240 horsepower, the Euro was 321 PS, but that in the real world at the speeds that we drive in the U.S., you know, high speed in the U.S. means anything over hundred kilometers an hour. Um, at the speeds that we drive here, there was no difference. And so that really explained to me why these, these cars still did well in the market, despite, you know, the, the numbers being 80 horsepower or less. That's, I never would have imagined that, but that's uh, really like me, neither <laughs> uh, crazy. Me
1: neither. So, I think it's the channel of Haggerty, if I'm uh, correct. Yes, so, um, if you google both uh, Jason uh, carissa and the Haggerty name, you'll find the YouTube channel. and It's really like great to see this. Um, you must have also experience with the German TÜV compared mm-hmm. for an American because you know, <laughs> when we're in America, we see cars where I think. Oh man, really, is this going to the junkyard now, or is it? why is it on the road? So what was your, it was what just is your...
0: taken from, exactly. half the American cars look like they were just taken from a junkyard. Exactly, yeah. So is it the junkyard shuttle, or what is it? So um, <laughs> <laughs> can we just find out, tell us
1: more about this, because I think this is why I was so looking forward to this conversation, because you're the one that I really know who has the ability to speak about both car cultures, the U.S. one, the European one, and also even more specific, the US one in the West and in the East, and the German
0: one. So
1: let's speak uh-huh. about TÜV.
0: Would something oh, like TÜV be possible in America? So every state in the US has their own laws about vehicles, which is insane. This is you know the good and bad of having 50 individual states. Um, in California, for example, we have no safety inspection at all. <laughs> Nothing matters. Some states, for example, like Pennsylvania, have an annual safety inspection, and they're really looking at, are your lights working? So they look at lights, horn, so you can, you know, honk at people, uh, windshield wipers and brakes, and then uh, ball joints. So ball joints and tie rods, suspension, very, very quick inspection. If you have a hole in the side of the car that's (laughs) structural, they can fail you, but typically they'll say, "Mm, just be careful. (laughs) Our speeds are low enough that that's okay. Yeah. I really like that annual inspection. I really also like when there's an exemption for a car that doesn't really drive much. But California, Michigan, Florida, a bunch of other states I've lived in have nothing. And that is, you know, the land of the free, as, you know, we love to talk about. You're free to kill yourself and everyone else on the road with some pile of bolts that shouldn't be on the road, which is a nice thing until you get hit by somebody who has no brakes. So there's both good and bad. Turf is the way it should be, especially for a country that takes driving so seriously as Germany does. Mm-hmm. Um, we could never have an autobahn. We could never have a highway system without a speed limit for three reasons. Number one, uh, our drivers aren't trained the way German drivers are trained. Number two, our cars are not engineered for this and then definitely not made for it. And number three, our roads obviously aren't built for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the part of that is... The, the best example I can give is that I had my Scirocco for 15 years. I kept building stronger and stronger engines for it. Um, and with no TÜV there's no issue. I just build yeah. whatever I want. I didn't go crazy. I just added 50% horsepower. It's not like I went from 123 to 500, which is perfectly legal. But then I shipped it to Germany. And we did an, uh, an issue of Automobile Magazine called the Dream Edition. What's yeah. your dream? And my dream was I want to take my car to high school which I never got to do. So I shipped the car to Germany and I drove, I went to a big Scirocco meeting in Doffmach and then I went to the factory and I I just did all this cool stuff. I drove 2000 kilometers at top speed. So the car did 135 miles an hour, which is way too fast for that thing. Um, Originally it only did 120. So, I mean, it did less than 200 originally and there I am at 220, 215, 220 the whole time. And everything was just fine until I, we, were, we had a camera on the gauges to, to get a picture of the speedometer at 135 miles an hour. And I'm half paying attention. It's the third day of filming and just driving down to autobahn, 6,000 RPM in fifth. And I'm like, oh, there's my exit. So I get on the brakes to get off the exit. And all I had to do was stop once from 135 down to zero at the bottom of the exit ramp. Didn't happen. Uh, pedal on the floor, brakes actually on fire, r- real what? big flames. Oh, yeah. Those brakes were barely enough to stop that car once from 200. Yeah. When you're doing 230, that's a huge difference in terms of thermal energy that you have to dissipate. Yeah, And so if I would have ever built that engine... In Germany with that kind of horsepower the the next thing that would have needed to be done is to put bigger brakes on it yeah, obviously upgrade the brakes, and every yeah. upgrade everything else we don't have that because there's nowhere in this country where I'm doing 135 miles an hour for extended periods of time or needing to stop except for a racetrack so here I had all the 15 years of experience with this car never thought anything of it and the one time I really needed those brakes didn't work so wow that's the difference the roads and the you know the and the use case dictates the inspection and turf is insane but it needs to be that way for the way that germany's roads are agreed let's go back to cars that you
1: own because Mm -hmm. i remember this video we've done for bmw classic as well where you drive your 325 e30 touring and -hmm. i was surprised okay why is this chap so in love with the touring (laughs) because (laughs) to be honest we share the same passion but that comes later but why touring
0: uh So, okay, first of all, remember that I grew up in the U.S. and was always into non-U.S. cars. So clearly I have some sort of bias towards the non-conventional stuff and doing what other people don't. That's part of it. There's always the forbidden fruit concept. Everyone always wants what they can't have. And we didn't get, North America didn't get a 3 Series Touring. Um, Mm -hmm. We only got coupe, convertible, and sedan. So when I was looking for an E30, one of my first experiences ever in being sideways was my friend's dad. He was a doctor, but on the weekends was a race instructor. And he took me and a bunch of our friends out to a museum, and it was snowing. And I remember my mom saying, what are you, crazy? You're driving in the snow? And he was like, this is the best time in the world to drive. (laughs) Left our driveway completely sideways and drifted up the street. (laughs) Uh, At the rev limiter, it was a 325E, so it was the Eta Motor 2.7. And I'll just never forget the sound of that M20. Just, you know, that engine has this very wispy, airy to it. And so there it was, just (laughs) up the street. And I'm like, this guy is out of his mind, and I want to be just like him. So it was a foregone conclusion I was going to have an E30, and I was going to have a 325 I. And so tried to get one when I was in college before the before the Scirocco thing happened. Um, they were affordable, but my mom was like, you're not having a BMW for your first car that's too expensive, and what if it breaks? And I thought, I'll fix it. But so when it finally came around to it, I was 22, and I was now dead set. I'm going to have an E30. And basically, it's just vent shon den shon. If you're going to yeah. do it, do it right. And if I was going to have an E30, it was obviously going to be a 325i because why not have the most power and the best sound but then also if I'm going to have one I might as well look at a wagon so I was in Germany with with my best friend and we, he landed and we made a 10 day vacation just for the purpose of buying cars <laughs> and so he he found on day 6 or day 5 he found the car he wanted which was a 126 Mercedes 500 SEC. again forbidden fruit because in the US we only get the 560 yeah. with the high torque motor and he wanted the high horsepower motor and I was satisfied. I'm like, okay, you got your car, we're done. And he was like, no, 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 misery loves company. You're buying one too. And and I, I'm like, I, I don't, no, no, I don't need this one. And he found a classified ad for a three. We had looked at a couple of 325 I tourings, one, a 324 TD, which diesel, that was cool. We didn't get that, but didn't have the sound. And there was this ad and it was just, it was 1500 euro or eight. I think the asking price was 1800 euro. This was 2002. At the time, U.S. dollar and euro were equal. So I thought, all right, for 1,800 bucks, I'll look at it. But it was blue, and I didn't want blue, and I just, eh, whatever. But we had nothing else to do, because the whole point of our vacation was to go buy cars. And now (laughs) we bought one. So, all right, it was really hot out. It was summer. And so we drove two hours to look at this car. And I took one look at the paint and thought, uh-oh, I love the color. So bought the thing for 1,500 euro. And then... Now I had to figure out what to do with it, because we were leaving in two days, and I had no plans on getting it home. It was not legal for import into the US for another ten years. <laughs> so that presented a bit of a problem. Uh, but I was twenty two and stupid. and so or twenty six and stupid. Uh, that didn't ch- <laughs> still. still never changed. And so long story short, it wound up here. It's now legal. Everything's fine. But yeah. I just thought, if I'm going to do it, let me have something really cool. Um, And I'll have a 325i wagon, and no one else will have it. And here we are, all these years later.
1: Mega. I think that's a lovely story. So this car will stay, I would say. Yeah. For those uh, not familiar with the different car scenes, how would you personally describe the different ones? Let's start in the West, and let's go step by step where you think – I give you the permission to have the awful stereotypes as you like to.
0: Oh, yeah. This will be so, fun.
1: And let's go on.
0: So I'll I'll go through quickly some of the places I've lived so we can make fun of everyone equally. <laughs> um, Detroit, so Michigan, has a huge car scene, very much American focused. Um, the reason you see a lot of big American cars is, again, as I said, as soon as I moved there, I never understood American cars ever until I moved there. And I'm like, wait a second. The roads are flat and straight and they're on a one mile grid. So there's a mile in between major blocks. So all of these cars and the roads are in terrible condition. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things have to do is schlep themselves up to 50, 60 miles an hour, run over potholes that are the size of Duisburg and, and then stop. <laughs> That's all I have to do. And then occasionally make a 90 degree left or a 90 degree right at 10 miles an hour, and then accelerate themselves back up. So you tended to see stuff with huge amounts of suspension travel, soft and comfortable, steering doesn't matter, brakes don't matter, power matters because when after you make that 90 degree turn, you can (laughs) do a huge burnout for a mile before you have to stop again. So you tend to see Detroit, Michigan, you, you tend to see a lot of big American stuff. They make perfect sense there and they work brilliantly there. Pittsburgh, which is where I lived before, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, A very hilly city, very reminiscent of San Francisco in the hills, base of the mountains, terrible weather. You get a huge enthusiast community of Honda and Volkswagen. Also, I should say, economically depressed. So not a lot of money in the city. So, all the kids, which I was one of, either chose Volkswagens or Hondas, and every stoplight, I would be in my VR6 Golf, and just, there'd be some guy in a Honda Civic next to me with an Acura-swapped B18 engine or whatever, and I would dust him, and it, I had a four-door Golf, in the US, the four-door was, was slow, it was only the 2.0. Uh, they would get up to the next light, and all the Honda guys knew what was in the Volkswagens. What? What's in that thing? It's a four-door, which is so much fun. But you tended to have little, smaller, nimble cars that could deal with the hilly, twisty roads, even though it was only four hours away from Detroit. Completely different car scene. Also, I should add Subarus and Audis for those who lived in the hills outside of the city because of the snow. Moving, I moved to Pittsburgh from South Florida, which is another fascinating car culture. Flat, terrible roads. Basically every road is like a demolition derby because everyone is, it's, it's a melting pot of different automotive cultures, which means no one is following the same set of rules ever. So the guy from Haiti against the guy from Cuba against the Jewish guy from, from Long Island versus me, the accidents were unbelievable. The roads are straight and fast and everything. It was just unbelievable culture clash. But you had a little bit of everything. So you Mm -hmm. have a lot of, you know, Lamborghinis and crazy cars in Miami. Uh, I lived in Boca Raton, which was Mm -hmm. all sort of, not all, but predominantly retirees from the Northeast. Uh, Lexus is everywhere. Huge Jewish community. So not a lot of Mercedes, not a lot of German cars. Um, At that time, especially, Lexus had just started to really make its mark. And so the American Jewish community thought, oh, we have an option to the German cars that's not German. And so Lexus took off. So one red light, you'd see somebody in a Lexus LS 400 proud of that amazing car. And they were genuinely unbelievable with, uh, you know, the stereotype would be the Long Island Jewish guy in his LS 400 versus the Italian from Brooklyn in his Camaro, Versus the Cuban guy in from, in who knows what in Lamborghini. And this full melting pot culture clash that was so amazing to watch. And then you get the Palm Beach guy in his Rolls Royce. I yeah. mean, it was just it, unbelievable. Uh, South Florida's car culture is unbelievable. And if you took any of those people out of South Florida and put them in Marin County, which is where I live, right north of San Francisco... Everyone would be uncomfortable. <laughs> no one would know what to look at, what to do. Well, what is this person doing in this gold leaf wrapped Lamborghini? Well, I'm so confused here. And then he would be looking at the guy. You live in a $6 million house and you drive a Prius. What's wrong with you? And the, you know, the Northern California guy would say, oh, but the environment. And then the South Florida guy would say, to hell with the environment. I'm burning as much gas as I can. I mean, that. so I think that's really the difference in American car cultures. I mean, it doesn't get any more different. There, look, the reality is, I never want to offend everyone, right? No. I don't. I appreciate every part of U.S. car culture, yeah. except for the Prius drivers. Um, I'm kidding. But there, the the reality is, everyone has different taste, and that's what makes the car community interesting.
1: Absolutely, it's these different kinds of interest of all the people you meet wherever you go. You go to a crazy car meet for Japanese cars. You can also go to a BMW. 2002 meeting, everyone speaks a different language, but the same language is the passion for cars. And, you know, when we, the ordinary men like you and I, do our daily jobs, we have the chance of meeting also legends of our field. And when you first meet them and you have the chance to speak to them, that's one thing. But then enjoying sharing a car driving with them, that's really something super special. I remember that I was driven with Prince uh, Leopold from Bayern. I was driven in uh, recreation uh, from the museum, I think, from the recreation of the uh, Monte Carlo Mini. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And, you know, this chap is really like, Poldi is his nickname, or as we say, Driopold, so turning Pold, (laughs) because he was famous for spinning around when he was active in racing. But he was really like, you know, you think, okay, now this guy, a prince, prince from Bavaria, okay but it was the best time I ever uh, had cool. driving. And we drove, I think was like 800 kilometers on a rally or something. Ooh. And he was really like talking to you, like overtaking on the, on the B road, overtaking. And you see the car coming, you say, why are you scared? We are so small. We fit both. And we did, actually. So <laughs> it was really like, and then just talking and driving, I really liked that. And um, the other one where I was also super surprised that he's such a great character was Walter Rohl, who just celebrated his fifth birthday. today. So: Walter is
0: great. Uh, Valde has tried to kill me a couple times. Not he really. is, oh my God. He, you think that 75 years old, he would calm down, but there's a racer mentality in him that has not stopped at all. And the first time I experienced that was <laughs> a Cayman GT4 launch. We were on some racetrack and he was in front of me in, an. I think it was in 911 GT3. So the deal is, you know, we're journalists. We're there. We're jet lagged. We're tired. We've just flown across the world. You know, half the guys are still drunk from the flight. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't drink, so that, you know, they never have to worry about that. Me, but I wake up crazy. So behind him on the racetrack, and he's moving mm-hmm. like, and I don't know the track. I don't know the car. No problem. Everything's fine. I'm keeping up with him. Keeping up with him, and I got a little too close. And if it's one thing that Valtter doesn't like, it's competition. So a friend of mine was actually in the car with him, talking to him. And he looks up, he's watching me in the mirrors, making sure Look, he's doing his job. He's making sure that I'm not making any mistakes and I'm not putting that car in danger and whatever. But he saw that I could drive and then I (laughs) I was keeping up with him. And he turned around to my friend Scott and interrupted him and was like, every once in a while, you need to show him who's boss. Hold on. He took off. And I'm like, I, I don't know what's going on in that car. All I know is now he went from, you know, eight and a half, nine tenths to like 11 tenths in the middle of one corner. And we we'll come up this big hill and there's a blind crest that goes right down the other way. And he is full attack. Yeah. And I'm like, he's where his normal braking zone would be. He's flat on the gas for another hundred meters and I can hear it. So I'm like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> I mean, I caught it. But I came over the crest completely sideways, drifted the way down, and, you know, and then got the car straight, and he's waving out the window. Ha ha, hi, <laughs> here I am, Walter <laughs> You know me? You've heard of me? I'm So he did that, and I should have known better, Yeah, because the next time was on a road, and I was in Andreas Poeningo's personal 911R on the launch, and I was keeping up with Walter on a back road, which I shouldn't have been doing. I should have just said, no you go ahead. I'll stay 100 meters behind. And that's when you realize there's a reason why he is Valteroel. Like he is just on a Bumpy, twisty back road. He jumped it somehow in the middle of a corner. He like in the middle of a corner in mid-air, he got that car to change direction. I mean, it was just like violating every law of physics. And I finally I made it for probably 10 minutes behind him at full attack. And it's it's, of course it's much easier, by the way, to be behind someone on a road like that. So I can use his brake lights as a guide for you know anything going on. I would have never been able to do the pace that he did. And then finally, I lost it. Just stability PSM like stability control fully on. Still had a big moment where I hit some dirt, got sideways, and then flashed them, uh, you know, as if to say, "White flag, white flag, I'm done."
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. I would like to state one important thing. We try to make it also like a bit of an extra. It's not just a podcast. It should also be like a service podcast in a sense. So we ask every guest to give us and the people who are listening in a bit of a tip, hint, advice, whatever. And I thought as you live in Northern California, you live around one of the most beautiful places in the States. And if you can tell us what would be the best road for driving, where do you do a daily road trip? Let's say Jason has another good day. He takes out one of his cars and go out
0: driving. Okay, so I'll make you a deal. I'll tell you the road, but you can't tell anyone else. <laughs> so the, pro- the my, my initial reaction to this is, oh, Angeles Crest down in Los Angeles, because that's the one that everyone knows, or, you know, the, the roads in Malibu. Um, yeah. So the, the risk is always telling everyone your secret means that it's no longer a secret, but I'll be nice. Just don't tell anyone. The best driving road in the world, dun, dun, dun is a road called Stewart's Point-Skaggs Springs Road. It's also the most difficult thing in the world to pronounce. It's about 130 miles north, so 200 kilometers north of San Francisco. It's a road that connects Highway 101, which is a, the north-south main artery on the west coast, to the coast, Highway 1, which is the, the coastal road. I think it's about 30, 35, 38 miles long. And the reason that I think it's the best is it's actually... Uh, three in one it's buy, buy one get three deal so it's three different roads in one so you start out with it was really like the motorcycle sections two million million motorcyclists on this road especially on a nice weekend but it's really smooth very open very fast 80 mile an hour of course you would never do those speeds but you could do 80 miles an hour um open sweeping corners up and down these hills beautiful there's a reservoir and water at the beginning and then almost like someone switch, flicks a light switch, boom, the terrain changes, the road gets much bumpier. And then you have, I don't know, 15 miles of pretty tight, insane stuff. Big drop offs on the one side, big cliff face on the other, trees everywhere, you know, leafs on the road, pretty, pretty challenging road stuff. A lot of elevation changes, but a fast second and third gear, really beautiful twisty road. And then you get to the bottom of that, and there's a little bridge, and there's kind of no one around, and there's nothing. And then somebody flicks a switch again, and then it turns into a World Rally Championship stage, which is the climb back to the coast. And it is – there's no other word to describe it than batshit fucking nuts. Um, First and second gear stuff with Redwoods as the apex markers um, when the roots are pulling the road up, so there's nice mid-corner bumps that really upset some cars – and challenge others. The good ones are the ones that can make it through there. With hairpins, there are three jumps. You don't necessarily have to jump, but if you're going fast enough and you know which ones to do, you can jump. And it's, there's no one on the road except for the occasional huge logging truck, massive truck that takes up the whole road. So you'd better make sure you can stop. And I've had a couple close calls, but this road just turns, it starts, you know, again, first chapter is the motorcycle section. Second is nice back road. Third one is WRC stage. And then about, 150 meters past the third jump, you get to highway one and you're at the ocean. And so it starts out, you're in fields and winds up at the ocean. It's 30 something miles of, yeah. I did it once in a Prius, a rented Prius. <laughs> um, and it was, my face hurt for three days from smiling. Mm. So if you can do that, if you can have that much fun in a rented Prius on four mismatched tires, one of which had no almost no air in it. Um, yes, that's a good yeah. one. So Stuart's Point, Skag Springs Road.
1: And now, as you know, this is a secret and we keep it like this, you will find the link in the link box because you will be, uh, we were sharing this.
0: Just don't tell anyone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we will keep it as a secret. Perfect. Thank you very much, Jason. It was such a nice talk. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. You absolutely did a great job in bringing us uh, both car cultures closer. So I think this podcast is absolutely suitable for everyone around the world to understand different car cultures, even in the US and uh, between Europe because the one who can tell the story is Jason and I'm super thankful that you were here and uh, can't wait for the reaction in the comments and
0: (laughs) hopefully I didn't make too many people angry I'm um... I'm sure no one, who could, you could no one, I will protect Uh... you that's fine. I'll fight with everyone. In the it's my favorite thing to do is to fight about cars. So let's let's do this. Absolutely. Out of love. We all do it out of love, right? Thank you very much,
1: Jason Camisa. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>